This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Today's the finale and the closing credits. Uh, ten words, out of slavery and in to freedom. So today's a day where our culture celebrates a day of freedom, um, and today is a day where we are concluding a series that talks about the freedom ultimately that God gives to us in this study of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given in a context of God freeing his people from slavery, God meeting them with grace, God meeting them, we could even say, with a picture of the gospel, delivering them from slavery to freedom, and then giving them a law. So grace spoke before the law, then giving them a law as to how they were to live for God, respond to God, represent God as his people. And part of that law is the Ten Commandments, or as later in Exodus they're referred to as the Ten Words. And so those Ten Commandments are given, and as we study the Ten Commandments, which are given to us uh, as, as, as God's people to respond to, then we then see how we break them and our need afresh for a Savior, and so it draws us back to grace. So it's sort of circular. It's grace, law, grace, law, grace, law. That's kind of how we uh, live our lives. So today, we're looking at the last commandment, but I'm going to read them all. So beginning in verse 1 in Exodus 20, I'm reading from the ESV. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And here today, here's the tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, the ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. God, we thank you for 
your holy word to us. And we pray now that by your spirit, you would open our ears to hear, that you would open our hearts to understand. We pray that you would speak to us clearly, Lord, that you would show us Jesus Christ as our glorious Savior, and that you would meet us in this time in a glorious way, Lord. Help us to see you and to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I could use a fireworks analogy, on a surface reading, without really understanding all of the Ten Commandments, it might be possible for someone to wrongly, incorrectly read the Ten Commandments and come to the end and say, it really doesn't end with a great finale. I mean, it really doesn't end with a sensational display like you see at a Fourth of July fireworks show. Because the truth is, if, if we were to just read it on the surface, someone could look and say, all the sensational, explosive sins have already been dealt with. I mean, we've already talked about worshiping other gods. That's huge. We've already talked about bowing down to statues of idols. That's serious. That's huge. We've already talked about murdering people. That is an explosively um, evil sin. We've already talked about committing adultery. That is a vile, explosive sin. And if we really don't understand the Ten Commandments, we could say after the fireworks of warning against these explosive sins, it's sort of like a whimper at the end. I mean, it almost feels like to someone who would be uninformed, and this is a fair first reading, that murder is huge, and how on the same list as murder is something like, wow, I really wish I had that car. I really wish I had a car like my neighbor has. Yet that's what he's talking about here. How do those sins... Make it onto the same list. How is it that God gives us these warnings against sins which offend Him and harm others and misrepresent Him? How is it that He gives us these and then ends with, don't desire your neighbor's ox? Because it seems like it ends small. But the truth is, it is anything but small. And arguably, it is a grand explosion of truth that we meet at the end of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. The word covet means desire. It's actually a neutral term. It's not necessarily a bad term. And we even use it as a neutral. We could even use it as a good term. If I say to you, I'm going through a really hard time and I covet your prayers. Have you ever heard that? That's kind of Christianese. We talk that way sometimes. Like, I covet your prayers. What, that mean? what does that mean? I desire that you would pray for me in this difficult situation. So it is a neutral term. But the context here would indicate that it's not neutral, but it's being used in a sense to demonstrate an evil desire. Because it's something that's forbidden by God in his law. So it's something that represents an evil desire. And in this case, it, it is a desire for something that belongs to your neighbor. A desire for something that belongs to our neighbor is what's forbidden here. And this is unique in the commands, in, that, in these ten commands, in that 
Uh, This is forbidding an internal desire and not merely an external action. There's no external action given here. And that's helpful to consider because sometimes there can be this misunderstanding like the Old Testament law is about all the do's and don'ts of what you're not supposed to do externally. And then in the New Testament, we get to the heart. Well, to be sure, Jesus uh, provides a deeper interpretation of the commandments by saying you may not murder. Well, you may not even be angry with your neighbor. Jesus says that. You may not commit adultery. You may not even lust after someone else. So Jesus does make a heart application, but Jesus doesn't introduce that. The law itself goes after the heart, and here's a demonstration. We, we don't even get off the, the stone tablets here before we see that God is addressing the heart, the desires. God's not just addressing sin at an external level so that if you clean yourself up and avoid all the bad stuff out there, you're okay. God looks at the heart. And that's what he is doing here, addressing inner motivations. And because this commandment in some ways shifts explicitly from external to internal, because of that, arguably, this is the grandest explosion of all. They end with a bang. And here's the reason why. Francis Schaeffer said, the person who thinks they're moral and acceptable to God by their morality in this command, finds out they're not and they need a Savior. The person who skates through, mistakenly, but skates through in their understanding the first nine commandments and says, I'm okay. I've never murdered. I don't steal. I haven't committed adultery. They skate through the first. This, they crash into a wall in the 10th commandment because it says that you're guilty. Because there's no one who would say, I've never desired something that didn't belong to me. And so this commandment, in bold relief, announces all of us are guilty and all of us need a Savior. And that's the glory of this, that it shows us our need of a Savior. And that points us ultimately to Jesus Christ. Well, a few things. Let's look at what is forbidden in this commandment. And then let's look at what is required in this commandment. And let's look at how Jesus fulfills this commandment. Uh, to us. That's kind of the outline. So first of all, what is forbidden? Well, first of it, firstly, we must understand covetousness with regard to God. We could say we need to understand this theologically in a specific sense. When I say theology, I mean relating to God, the doctrine of God. We need to understand this not horizontally, that is human to human, but we need to understand this vertically between us and God. So what's going on here, if we just think horizontally, it'll be like it's not a big deal. Okay, so I walk out in the parking lot, and I see a car that's nicer than mine, and I say, I would like that car. Okay, I wish I had that car. Oh, I'd be happy if I had that car, and then I go in and sit down in my car, and it won't start, and that compounds it. So if, if that happens, I mean, arguably, you could say, well, who's hurt? I didn't say anything to my neighbor. I didn't angrily key his car because I don't have it. So, boy, you probably wouldn't want to come back to that church if that's what's happening out there. But so what... <laughs> What it, what's going on there is, <clears throat> I could say, well, no one else is really being hurt, but it's not horizontal. It's primarily a vertical commandment, ultimately. And what I am saying is, God, you who are sovereign, you who reign over all of life by your providence, have determined that I shouldn't have this or that, and someone else should, but I'm dissatisfied with your rule. You have been unfair to me. I I I want something else. 
I will be happy if I have that. I will be content if I have that. Why aren't you giving me what you have given them? God, here's what we're really saying. You're not enough. I need that. And so it is an opposition to God and his rulership and in his sovereignty. It's a failure to submit ourselves to his reign. And so we grumble and we complain, ultimately not against neighbor, but ultimately our grumbling and complaining and our desire for what belongs to our neighbor is rooted in our dissatisfaction with God and his provision for us. That's why it's so serious. Because we are assaulting God in his rule. We are blabbing at God on his throne. That's the problem. We're saying it's not fair. I don't want what you've provided. I want that. And this starts at a very young age. Do you know right now over there, thank the Lord for the people serving in the nursery and in the toddlers. Do you know what the most popular toy, we, we did a study, do you know what the po- most popular toy in the toddler class is? Whichever toy someone else has in their hands. That's the most popular toy. And before a kid can talk, just sitting there, nobody has anything, one child picks up a toy, child number two, covetous child number two, cannot even articulate words. And instantly, eh, eh. that's the 10th commandment. <laughs> Now, that child doesn't understand it, but neither did Paul. Paul says in Romans 7, I didn't even know what coveting was until, he says this, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law told me what coveting was, and then I realized, wow, there's all kinds of coveting in my life. And so, we're big boys and girls, and no one's going to walk out in the parking lot and go, eh. But, But that's what's happening. It starts at a young age. In this passage, God forbids two types of coveting. Two basic types. First of all, he forbids desiring your neighbor's people, if I could say it that way. And he forbids desiring your neighbor's possessions. His or her people are in his or her possessions. So let's look at people first. Do not covet your neighbor's house. We'll get there in a second. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. I actually want to start there with people. Because he goes on to talk about manservant and maidservant as well. You cannot have a desire for a married person that is not, you're not married to. You cannot desire someone else's spouse. Now, obviously, this would, um, this would relate to the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus says you shall not lust after someone else. That is, you shall not desire uh, to, to have sex with someone that you're not married to, is what he's saying there. So, desiring your neighbor's spouse, um, that would include... You know, not lusting after your savior, not not desiring sexually your neighbor's spouse, but it's much broader than that. And, and the tricky thing about this is, it can seem much more sanitized than that. Where someone would say, "Oh well, no, I'm not supposed to desire a sexual relationship with that person," and so that one seems more of more obvious. But what's less obvious and what's more subtle, but equally serious. Less obvious, more subtle, equally serious, is coveting, desiring someone else's spouse. A wife can have thoughts, can run down the line like this. If my husband would only treat me like he treats her, 
then I'd be happy. My marriage would be good. Life would be okay. If only my husband was like him. If only my husband was romantic like her husband is. And then there can be a real subtle, subtle shift there that moves beyond respect for someone who's godly to desiring. If my husband made me feel special like hers does. If my husband took more of an interest in our kids like he does in his kids. If my husband led our family spiritually like he leads his family. See, it could be a desire for a good, that's a good thing. A husband leading the wife and leading the children spiritually, that's a good thing. What's not a good thing is when you're not married to him and it's not just that desire, but it's him that you are desiring. That's the problem. If my husband earned an income like him, if my husband fixed up the house like him, if my husband communicated with me like he does, if my husband would plan something for our family like he does, if my husband was available like he is, and it goes on and on and on and on, comparing and not only comparing but comparing and criticizing the husband you do have and being dissatisfied and discontent with God's provision and desiring what God, who, rather who, not what, desiring who God has not provided. What would it be like to be married to someone who did those things? What would it be like to be married to him? That that's what's at root in coveting someone else's spouse. Or a husband could say, if my wife was only submissive like she is to her husband, if my wife only looked like she does, if my wife only acted like she does, if my wife was more supportive and non-nagging like she is, if my wife organized our home like she organizes her home, if my wife was thrifty like she is, if my wife was easygoing and not uptight like she is, if my wife was fun like she is, I would be happy. If my wife was not argumentative like she's not argumentative, if my wife was interested in intimacy like someone else probably is, then my life would be good. It would be much better. I would be happy. What would it be like to be married to someone like her? What would it be like to be married to her? And so, in the same way, there is a desire for someone. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Obviously, husband as well. Do not covet your neighbor's spouse. That's what is in view. Now, Scripture is not saying that we can't admire or respect or appreciate godly character qualities in someone else. Um, it's, we're not saying that. We're not saying that we could never look at anyone else and respect something about their character or learn from them or seek to imitate them. The difference is, is when we say, that is what would make me happy. He or she is what would make me happy. It's a subtle thing in the heart. It's not restricted to marriage either. I mean, obviously, a single person 
could desire someone else to be married to someone else's spouse secretly as a desire, as a wish, as a fantasy, as a temptation, as a thought pattern. It's very deceptive because we, here's what happens. We begin to think, my life would be good if circumstances were different. My life would be good if someone was in my life, someone different, someone better was in my life. And that's just not the case because circumstances don't make your life better, ultimately. Don't make my life better. I don't need a change of person. I don't need a change of possessions. I need God. I need a change of desires. That's what we all need. A different person would not change your life. Your life is changed from the inside when you are content with God and His provision and not provision elsewhere. This is a little bit of a side note. I'll let you know this is a tad of a rabbit trail, but it's helpful on this marriage issue. It's helpful on this issue, I think. If it appears to you like your neighbor and his wife or your neighbor and her husband in the church, in the care group, whatever, have a better marriage than you do, and you want that kind of a marriage with all the kinds of things I just listed and more, when you want that marriage, the, the reality is the reason that marriage is like it is, is first of all, the work of God. It's not the people involved. It's their response to God that makes the difference in the marriage. It's not give me the right person. It's how can I be the right person? That's what changes a marriage. What changes our marriage is when God grips our heart and the scripture informs and dictates and changes us So the wife desires to honor her husband, a husband desires to love his wife like Christ loved the church. That's what makes the difference. We're deluded to think that the grass is greener if I had a different person. Some great wisdom I read, brief, I thought great wisdom from Rick Warren on this topic. This is what he said, marriages that work take work. The grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener wherever you water it. The grass in someone's marriage is not greener over there because they got a different person. The grass becomes green when you water it. That is, if I can interpret what he's saying, what I think he means, that is when God changes me, not replaces her or him. That's when it changes, when my outlook changes, when I move from discontent to content, when I move from demanding and critical to grateful and joyous. That's when the grass is greener. That's when the marriage changes. But this culture leads us in the temptations and the flesh, the world, the flesh, the devil, lead us to think, I need different and that will be better. Another's possessions. Here we go. Not only another's people, but another's possessions. You may not covet your neighbor's house. Okay, don't be discontent, the scripture says, with your dwelling and desire someone else's dwelling. That would obviously include the contents of their dwelling. This is a heart issue. If you live in a hut, you could still covet another better hut. Okay, so this is heart. This isn't just circumstance. But having said that, we live in a world, I mean, I haven't been anywhere like this. I haven't been anywhere like this zip code, personally. I'm sure it's out there. I mean, I've seen some exclusive places, really exclusive, that are small. But in terms of a whole zip code, this temptation is massive where we are. There are so many 
better, nicer houses with so many better, nicer contents. I've never been anywhere like this personally. And so it's just really easy to go to your neighbor's house, even for care group. I mean, it could be even your Christian neighbor, your physical neighbor, whatever it is, and you walk in, and what are your thoughts? Lord, thank you for you for what you've provided for me. Lord, thank you for you for what you've provided for them, or I'd be happy, I want, I need, I desire, eh, that kitchen That kitchen, if I had that kitchen, those appliances, that television, just one where the kid, we don't have to have a kid holding up a rabbit ear just to get to reception. I'd be happy for that. I want that TV. I want that computer. I want that furniture. I want that landscaping. I want that neighborhood. I want that decor. I want that garage. Recently faced this temptation. Last fall, we added a car. This makes no sense. Last fall, we added a car to our family. We have four adult drivers. We added a car, and we moved, and we lost a garage bay. So we moved from three-car garage to two-car garage and went from three to four cars at the same time. And that's nuts. I mean, I think it makes no sense at all, but that's what we did. And so that just provides. So yesterday, or not yesterday, recently I was driving, and I pulled up into someone's three-car garage, three empty bays, and I was just, wow, any, I just, that would make me happy. I need that. I, I, we don't need the gymnastics of backing in and out and turning. I mean, it, is, it takes 15 minutes to get out of the driveway at our house because you've got to move four cars. This, you know, it's just... It, so you say, garage? Who cares about a garage? I do. I mean, you can covet anything. The tools inside of the garage. Ladies, a husband who would clean and organize a garage. I mean, it doesn't matter. A garage can be a temptation. Uh, it can move from a place to store a lawnmower in a car to a place where the Tenth Commandment is actively bringing conviction. We can be tempted to want what other people have rather than being content in God's provision, rather than celebrating God's provision. We can want something else, and we cannot be happy when someone else has it. Someone said that envy is the first cousin to covetousness. So sometimes it's not only I want that and I'll be happy, but I don't want them to have that. The list is endless, is it not? I would be happy if I had X like they have. If I had their clothes, if I had their money, if I had their retirement plan, if I had their books, if I had their gadgets, if I had anything. That's why the passage here, just so nothing gets away and somebody can say, okay, I'm happy with my wife, I'm happy with my ox, and I'm happy with... So this doesn't apply to me. No, this is what the Scripture says. You shall not covet, it has a long list, and at the end, or anything that is your neighbor's. Oh, that's the catch. That's the catch-all. Anything. It's not even physical items. It could be someone... It could be intangibles. Do not think your life would be better if you had your neighbor's... Looks, intelligence, personality, sense of humor, popularity, gifts, abilities. It just goes on and on. Where can you compare? Give any category where you can compare yourself to another human and coveting is, coveting is possible. And it's more than possible, it's likely. Work is in view. He talks about work here. He talks about work when he says, do not covet your neighbor's ox or donkey. This is not a petting zoo. An ox and a donkey is what you made a living with. 
You put a, um, a yoke on an ox, and an ox can plow for you. You put a, uh, a donkey, it could be transportation, it also could be something to haul. I mean, it's a, uh, if you're in the trades, your donkey is your pickup truck. That's what it is. It's your work truck. That's, that's what a donkey is. If you work, you know, indoors, then your donkey and your ox is your computer or whatever else you work off of, your office, whatever it is. Your manservant and maids, male ser- manservant, woman servant, female servant, those are employees. He's talking about work. And so it's just easy to say, you know what? We spend a lot of time at work, a lot of our life, probably a third of our life or more is at work. A third of a day is at work anyway. So it's just really tempting to say, if I had someone else's job, I'd be happy. If I had someone else's career, I'd be happy. What I need, if I had their salary, if I had their boss, if I, if I had their office, if I had their staff, if I just had that, then life would be good. If I just had that, I'd be okay. That's the lie that coveting tempts us with. Because whatever that is, it's not enough. Whatever that is, it's not going to make everything okay. See, if you think you'll be happy with more stuff, you won't. You will be a coveter with more stuff. And that puts you at risk of greater guilt. Because now you are enjoying greater physical blessings and still dissatisfied in God and wanting more. So adding stuff to a coveter without dealing with our heart puts us in a worse and not a better position. I mean, have you ever wanted something really bad, really, really, really bad? It could be something on this list. It could be a, a potential spouse that you really wanted to marry and you did. Or a potential job that you wanted to land and you did. I mean, were you happy every second of your life after that? Or were you ever wanting something else? Probably, because he's saying even after you got that, you, you wanted another wife. You wanted a different job. It's in the heart. Ecclesiastes says, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Reportedly, I don't have the quote, I mean, I wasn't there, but reportedly, John Rockefeller was one time asked, obviously a wealthy tycoon was asked, how much money does it take to make a person happy? And his answer was, a little bit more. That's what Ecclesiastes says. Whoever has money never has money enough. Whoever has uncontrolled desires for something besides God And something besides God's provision will not only dishonor God, likely sin against others, but will never find the joy that we're looking for. Because it can't be found anywhere else. The answer is not more stuff, a different house, a different job. It's a different heart. That's the answer. And that's what brings us to what this commandment requires. Implicitly, if we are forbidden to desire what God has not provided for us, what's the implicit requirement? Well, the implicit requirement is that we're content with what God has provided. And we're not just content in things, but we're content in God. Because this, after all, is a vertical issue. We are content in God. 
John Piper said this, covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. You desire something so much that you lose your contentment in God. He's no longer enough. You need God and. It's the if only of life. If only I have that, then I will be happy. The heart that is satisfied in God, the heart that is satisfied in His provisions, is not looking for a different spouse and a different job and a different house as a means to make them happy. doesn't mean you can't get married. doesn't mean you shouldn't buy a house. doesn't even mean that you can't have nice things in your life um, in an appropriate way. It doesn't even mean that. It just means that our heart's not to be attached and our satisfaction and our joy not attached, but attached to God. The heart that is trusting God, enjoying God, and relying on God, I mean more than that, intoxicated with God, filled with the joy of God, walking with the Lord is a heart that is full and not looking elsewhere. And my experience is that that changes constantly. It's just like a lot easier right now this second than it will be this afternoon or tomorrow perhaps. We just This is a battle all the time for us. It's a battle of Resting in the Savior, trusting in the Savior, celebrating God's plan for my life, finding joy in Him, filled with His Spirit, sustained by His grace. That's the daily Christian life. That's why it's called a battle. Internally, there's a battle going on for us. The battle is the first commandment. Will I worship God alone or will will I worship many other gods? We could have taken each of the things on here and addressed them as idols. That would be appropriate. Job can be an idol. Uh, certain cravings and desires for a certain kind of life or a certain spouse or whatever, um, certain possessions. Those can all be idols that we run after. See, what's the positive response here? It's what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What he's saying there, it's, it's a poetic statement, but what he's saying there is, God, you are everything. I want you to be my everything. I want to know you. I want to know your word. I want to be filled by your spirit. I want to be basking in your gospel, thinking about the grace extended to me in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want to think about my sins forgiven. I want to think about your many provisions. And I want to find my heart resting and satisfied in you. That's not hyper-spirituality. That's Christianity. Christianity is we are trading all the other gods that are out there and we're coming and saying, Jesus Christ, you are my God. You are my Savior. I want you Jesus said in John 15, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus said the very words of my teaching, Jesus is fully God, fully man. The words I'm speaking to you, here's their purpose, is that they sustain you, they fill you, that I am your joy, my teaching is your joy, that when you receive and believe and rest in my Word, the joy of Christ, God's own joy, is to be resident in you, and that your joy may be full. 
so that you're not looking for things and people and ideas and whatever it is to fill you up and to make your life meaningful and to bring you joy. But even in times of difficulty, even in times of suffering, which is real, there could be an underlying sustaining joy that buoys your soul up even in sorrow. That says, Jesus is enough for me in sorrow. That's that's what Jesus said. That's not some platitude, some greeting card, some bumper sticker. That is reality. There's nothing more true than that. Than the words of Jesus are to be received and believed and embraced and responded to and applied and practiced such that the joy of God fills us up. And His joy is in us. And our joy may be full. That's the way Jesus lived. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He experienced suffering, but he didn't look for life outside the Father. He only did what he saw the Father doing. I and the Father are one. Jesus lived this way. Now, obviously, there's a distinction. He's God and we're not. His communion with the Father was perfect. I understand that. But Jesus lived this way. And the good news about that is he lived that way in our place. If you're a Christian here today, Jesus has fulfilled this commandment. And his fulfillment of this commandment is credited to your account. If you're a Christian here today, you are right with God because of Jesus' obedience. You come, it was read this morning, you come clothed in his righteousness. You come before the Lord in Jesus' righteousness. What does that mean? Well, specifically here today, it means Jesus never coveted. And when God looks at you, and relates to you here today, he invites you to a throne of grace and says, I relate to you as one who is never coveted because of Jesus' obedience and you are dressed in his robe of righteousness. But he also died for coveters. He gives his life. He never coveted, but he's the innocent one. And he gives his life to die in our place as our substitute to pay the price for our desires The reality is that we have not desired him alone. And so he dies for that sin. We've broken this commandment repeatedly. And that's why Jesus gives his life. Jesus, the innocent one, dies on the cross. And the scripture says that our sins were accounted to him, were credited to him. He who knew no sin came to be sin, the scripture says. That Jesus takes on our sins, including coveting, and God the Father pours out his judgment, which was due us, on Jesus. He treats Jesus as, as our sins deserve, frankly, is what the Scripture says. He has not treated us as our sins deserve, Psalm 103. Why? Because he treated Jesus as our sins deserve. He treated Jesus as a coveter, though he was innocent, because Jesus died as our substitute in our place, and he pours out his judgment on Jesus so that if we have trusted Christ as our Savior... That is, you're a Christian. You've turned from your sin. You've turned to Jesus. You've become a Christian. You've believed in him as your substitute. Then your sins are washed away. His righteousness is credited to you. Your sin was credited to him. And a substitution takes place so that you are forgiven. And the great hope is that Jesus is increasingly becoming enough for us. Do we still sin? Yes. But as we mature as Christians... Christ increases in our thoughts, our affections, our desires, our hopes, our dreams. 
And the world is to decrease in its allure, in its dazzle, in its lying that it fulfills. That's what happens. That's what sanctification is, growth and holiness. Christ becomes, as he, re- he, as he really is, but to us, he becomes greater. He doesn't increase actually, but our vision of him increases. And our heart changes, and we want to desire him more. I mean, go back to the prologue of the Ten Commandments. This is where we began this whole series. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's saying this, you were slaves. You had nothing. You could not free yourself. You could not deliver yourself. You were under the authority of Pharaoh, most powerful man on the earth. You had no freedoms, no rights. Your life was bondage. It was misery. It was at the subject, you were subject to others. You you had nothing. And I came in and swooped you out by grace. I rescued you. I took the most powerful army in the world and just drowned them and let you go free to bring you in a land so that you could know me, this loving, gracious, rescuing, kind God. What are you going to find in the land that's going to match that? I mean, really? The God who came in and freed you from slavery? Somebody else's ox is going to bring you a joy that compares to that? I mean, we look at ox and donkey, we say, how stupid is that temptation? I would never be tempted by that. Hey, the truth is, whatever we're looking at is as foolish as an ox or a donkey compared to God. I mean, a computer, a house, a job, that doesn't compare. The God who created everything with his word, who has sent Jesus, this is what it says to us, you were enslaved in sin, and God sent Jesus Christ. God himself came down to pay for your sin, to die in your place, to demonstrate love to you, to be raised on the third day, to defeat the power of sin, and to promise you the assurance of eternal life. That just as he rose, you have new life and he will return for you. That sure promise. All that God has provided, forgiven all of our sins, taken our place, took the blame in our place. No one can express love like that. No joy compares to that. So how in the world could we look elsewhere when we have the God who has created everything and who has redeemed and saved and rescued and loved us? The other stuff is comparatively, it it just will not compare to God. And when we get that perspective in view, then we can worship God and thank Him for provisions rather rather than worshiping the provisions. So, we should say, I love my wife. Thank you, Lord, for the provision. That's not idolatry. Thank you, Lord. We should be living full of joy for the stuff we have, full of joy in God for the things He's provided for us. And I worship my wife, and I worship my children, but I thank God for them because they bring me so much joy. Thankful for my house. Thankful for both bays of my garage. Thankful that i got cars to put in there and people to drive those cars in my family. Thank, that's wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Thankful for my relationships in my church. Thankful for all the provision. Food. I mean, we're to receive food, Scripture says, with thanksgiving. God, thank you for this meal. Maybe today, because of the holiday, you'll be out grilling or partying or something like that. You shouldn't feel guilty. You should say, thank you, Lord, for the freedom I have. 
that I can express this. Throw some more fatty meat on the grill. Thank you, Lord, for this privilege to celebrate today. You are so good to me. Non-coveting is not just walking around with blinders like, oh no, okay. It's joy. It's a life full of joy in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we've been freed from slavery. Now we're living in open spaces. I mean, even in suffering. It beats Egypt. And even in suffering, if you die, there's an eternal, and you will, we will, we all will, there's an eternal hope there. So Jesus is, the, the commandment of coveting is not just to put us so focused, we're so bad, we're so bad, inward, inward. That's not the goal. The goal of coveting is like, wow, it shows us our, our sin, but it points us to the Savior who has freed us from all sin. And I think this last commandment, and I'll close here, and I think the fulfillment, living in the good of this commandment, really ultimately empowers us to fulfill the other commandments. Because this commandment says, I go to the God who freed me, and I say, you're everything. Now, based on all that you've done for me, and how much I love you and want to find my life in you, how can I live for you? Okay, I I thank you for what you've given my neighbor. I won't covet. I want to tell the truth, because that reflects you, and I want to speak about you. I I want to celebrate my marriage rather than break my marriage and commit adultery elsewhere. I want to honor my father and mother. They're a gift from you. I want to celebrate the Lord's Day and be together. What a joy. I'm free. I'm free to come worship here today. And on and on. You see how it goes. When there's satisfaction in Christ, He's more than enough. I mean, I think I'd like to close the whole series with this, this, this verse, which has to do with coveting but points us to Jesus. Hebrews 13 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he, Jesus, for Jesus has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Why is coveting wrong? Because we don't need things. We have him. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll sustain us through temptation. He'll change us and empower us to live increasingly in obedience to these commands, to glorify Him and to please Him. As we consider His freedom, the work He did in the gospel, it changes our hearts. And we want to live for His glory. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. What a great promise to walk out that back door with today. He's with me. He has saved me. He is sustaining me. He's all that I need today. I don't have to hope in something or someone because I have him. And that's everything. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website, gracechurchfrisco.org.